I am recording now. Mm-hmm. All right. And you can hear me. Oh, you wake up now, do you? You choose this moment to wake up. I see. That's brilliant. Thank you, Pip. Well done. This week, Balance of Power. Series 1, Episode 3. Original air date, 29th of February, 1988. Is there a better metaphor for the absurdity of capitalist oppression than the last human being alive being forced to inventory irradiated haggis and being paid a wage of a single cigarette per day? listening to Searching for Fushal, part of the Oi Space Man podcast family, in which a polyamorous husband and wife do a deep dive on the sci-fi comedy series Red Dwarf from an intersectional feminist perspective. This podcast is definitely not safe for work. Find us at oispaceman.com. That's a good one. I, I told you I had a pretty decent one. Yeah. And that one was uh, for, uh, specifically for our uh, our recurring guest, I guess first-time guest of Searching for Fushal, but officially now our most recurring Oi Spaceman guest. Today we are joined by, uh, once again, our, our friend Jack Graham. Hi. Thanks for having me on the Searching for Fushal podcast. It's it's hard to say that. I have to concentrate on that. <laughs> you can just call us Oi Spaceman. I'm I'm sure it'll be fine. Or you know. Oh, can I? Oh, good, good. Th- those American idiots. That's that's enough as well. You know. Stop it. <laughs> or uh, you know the the brilliant woman married to the the uh, the slightly uh, slow uh, bearded man. Oh, is that me? <laughs> I think I think it's you. Yes. What, what are we talking about? I missed. Anyway. Well, I'm, on, so I'm on, so you're talking about capitalism, because obviously that's the only thing I ever think about. <laughs> no, I, I just, uh, you know, I thought I'd, I'd throw in a little capitalist joke for you there, Jack. I, I thought you'd appreciate it. but um, Thank you. you know. It makes me feel at home. Yeah, I, I just, I wanted, I wanted you to feel welcome here. Um, mm. So, today we are going to be talking about episode three of series one of Red Dwarf. Uh, this is uh, Balance of Power. Uh, this was the very first episode of Red Dwarf I ever saw. And, really? Uh, yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Jack, since you're the guest today and you are the official British person on the podcast today, our first mm. British person, uh, how have you been so far? Talking about these, uh, this this uh, kind of uh, his- historical, uh, historically important British show. Oh, very good. Very well, very well done indeed, yeah. Yeah, applause. Um, <laughs> although, you know, um, you didn't pick up on the fact that Groovy Funky Channel 27 is, is a reference to Channel 4. So I had to school you on, on that obscure fact about um, British pop culture in the, in the 80s. But yeah. uh, that's only to be expected. Yeah, and no, I, I, I expect I, I, There's to probably have... a couple of things I don't know about American culture. Maybe. There, I, I suspect you know more about American culture than, than I do, Frank, quite frankly. Um, I, I I try to avoid uh, culture of all kinds. So um, well, that, of course, that's your that's your cultural imperialism. I have no choice but to know all about your culture. <laughs> <laughs> I I, th- well, I think <laughs> while the queer girl just shakes her head. Yeah, yeah, and um, and rises above it all. 
Mm-hmm. Doesn't even have to rise. She stays above the cis het uh, normative uh, white guys and just. Yeah, she just stays there. in place and we sink. That's right, right. It. Well, we're just below her to begin with. We're yeah. way off topic, aren't we? Um, I was yeah. just going to say, like, what what are we doing? What show is this? <laughs> are we about to talk about my boobs? I don't know. Um, I haven't got anything about them in my notes. Uh, have I? Have I? Is that an oversight? No, I... it was more like a, an issue of a me being above the cishet norm people. Like, oh, does that okay. mean I have to be like behold? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is a podcast. This is audio only, so the audience wouldn't necessarily really get the benefit from it. And uh, you know, but so I think we'll save that for the uh, future video casts, perhaps. You know. Hmm. <laughs> And a new so, gap in the market to exploit. Yeah. Hey, there should be no sexualization of breasts. Women should be able to go out shirtless. I think we might actually talk a little bit about that towards the end of this episode. But um, to begin with, Jack, let's let's move away from Shanna's tits just briefly here. Um, as, as wonderful a topic of conversation as I find it. <laughs> and uh, actually, I was going to ask you, what is your uh, background with Red Dwarf? Uh, did you kind of grow up with it, or uh, you know? Well, I was a I was a teenager in the late eighties, early nineties. So there you go. I was a teenage boy in Britain in the late eighties, early nineties. So of course, I watched Red Dwarf. I mean, is that? Uh, I, I guess I guess coming to it, you know, from because it was just this weird thing that I just knew came on late night on PBS on Saturday nights for me when hmm. I first started seeing it in the in the kind of 1993 or so it was just airing on PBS and I like I knew no one who had ever heard of it I'd say oh there's a show Red Dwarf and then you know just kind of look at me quizzically um, well so so I mean I guess I guess it is sort of a thing that people are aware of it, it is kind of a part of the culture over there much more than it is here but I always have this you know um, weird thing whenever I do talk about it with people who for whom it is just sort of like, oh yeah, obviously I watched Red Dwarf. Yeah, no, mm. clearly. Yeah, um, I think that's probably true for a lot for, for people my age um, and a bit younger. Um, it wasn't it wasn't always like that at the start. Like when I first encountered it, it was because a friend of mine at, uh, at secondary school. We were both in the same. We were both in the second uh, second year at secondary school, which is secondary school is roughly analogous to your high school, I think. So whatever right. grade that is. Um, and yeah, he uh, Simon he was called, and he was really into it. He'd watched it from the start, and he said, "Oh, you got to watch this mate of mine, Simon." He said, "You got to watch Red Dwarf." And I said, "Okay." okay, okay. And I, I eventually got around to watching it, and the first one I saw, I think, was Stasis League from oh, Series God. Two, oh, which geez. just just made no sense to me at all whatsoever. <laughs> but then, then the next one I think was Queeg, which yeah. does make sense as a standalone. You can Wait, pick that up really. Queeg? Queeg is the one where Holly gets retired and they get the new backup computer, which is a an incredibly um, uh, <laughs> forceful an incredibly personality. River-like personality, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Instead of Holly, it's this terribly efficient um, sort of bully of a computer that uh, that right. bullies bullies them all to distraction, um, and that that's that works much better as a standalone than than Stasis Leak, which you can't really understand if you've never seen any of it before, um, and that I think hooked me and then of course there was parallel universe which is the last one from series two so i really only got into the first two years because like the show is there's the the first two years and then there's the rest of it you know right and today the first two years are by far my favorites from the televised show 
Um, and I really only got into the first two years at the very end, you know, right. um, and then caught them the next time they were rerun. But and then and then from sort of series three onwards, which is in, in, it's an interesting one, series three, because the writing is still quite a bit like series one and two, but it's it's changing a bit, but it's still quite similar. But the whole tone and the aesthetics are different. Um, from then onwards, it started to become more popular. Um, I suppose because the special effects were different and you got monsters in it and stuff. And sort of from from three and four onwards, uh, I just remember suddenly everybody was watching it. Well, every boy, every teenage boy I knew was watching Red Dwarf at least a bit, you know. Right. But there was this lovely little moment where it was just me and my mate Simon who knew about it. Uh, and it was the end of series two. Um, and then, of course, there was the there was the novel. There was Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers, which I remember I had no idea existed. And I just saw it sitting on a shelf in a newsagent's in a train station when I was getting the train to go to see my grandparents. And I just looked like, oh, my God. You know, and I just bought it straight away and read it in like the, I'd finished it by the time I got to the end of the train journey, you know. Yeah. And no. uh, that's that for me now is kind of Red Dwarf, that that book, that sort of uh, Red Dwarf, you know. Um, yeah. Which I don't even remember reading, but I know I read it and loved it. But it it, it feels like it's just kind of assimilated into my memories of the show, uh, which I did not realize until we started rewatching it. And Daniel mentioned the book, and I was like, I haven't read it. And he's like, Yes, you have. Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> it's it's a weird it's a weird experience to watch the show, especially the first two years. Yeah. Uh, on which the novel is based after you've read the novel. It really is because there's so much that's similar and you can sort of refer to the novel and um, fill in the blanks, so to speak. And yet there's also a lot of things that are different. It, it, really interesting the way yeah. they diverge like that. Well, I, I've said on the show that I, I mean, I started with the book Infinity Welcome Scaffold Drivers and then discovered the show later. Balance of Power was the first episode I ever saw. And interestingly, this one is not anywhere in. Um, the, the first two novels. Um, no. This is completely standalone. Um, and that's very surprising because it's an extremely crucial episode for um, Rimmer and Lister's early negotiation of their, of their new relationship, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I, you and I have kind of chatted a little bit kind of behind the scenes uh, about, you know, kind of how we feel about balance of power. Um, so <laughs> why don't we just uh, uh, start with Shana here and just kind of give general thoughts. How do, how do you feel about balance of power? I think for me, one of the issues that Balance of Power deals with, and I mean this like in a good way, like one of the, re the reasons I like Balance of Power, um, and again, we all know that episodes blur together and I have a hard time, um, but this is the first time we get to see Lister and his friends. This is the first time we get to see um, some of the Kachansky environment, you know? Uh, and we also get, at the same time, a lot of kind of existent, a lot of existential crises for both Lister and Rimmer, but it's all handled with such lightness and such jauntiness. And I could see it at different levels. I watched it a couple times, um, really trying to pay attention to what balance of power means in this episode. And there are so many different ways to kind of focus on what power is shifting and how and why. And um, 
what would have been different before and how was power, you know, quote unquote power viewed, period. Like, wh why do we label some things as powerful um, or makes you more in charge, uh, the line of duty and all of that. So it, there's just so much going on in the episode as there tends to be with Red Dwarf. And I just love so much of it. And so much of it still is, I think, Craig Charles is really hitting his stride with the performance of Lister here. I think same with um, Rimmer. Chris Berry. Chris Berry. Um, the whole fish gag with the cat <laughs> yeah. is one of, like, my favorite of all time. I don't – it's just so simple. Um but again, that's that's like, you know, you give a cat the power to get as many fish as it wants, it's going to keep getting fish until he sits there and says, I'm dying of fish. Um <laughs> so I've been fished to death. I've been fished to death. That's what it is. Uh there are so many little moments that I like in here that are always nice to revisit. Um but yeah, rewatching Red Dwarf so far, I think has just made me realize how fucking complicated some of these episodes are and not necessarily in a bad way. It's just like they bring up a lot and it's not necessarily that they talk about all of it, but it's all there. You know what I mean? Like there's not necessarily um, a huge discussion of life before and after, but we get like a brief vision and then, you know, rumor has, uh, Mr. Weasley's arm for a while. Peterson's <laughs> arm. Yeah. What's what's his name? Peterson's, Peterson's arm. Yeah. And the fact that he had tattoos that were like candy and um I love Scotland or something. Denmark, but yeah. Denmark. I'm sorry, I forget all proper nouns. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh Jack, Shana mentioned um, you know, briefly uh Craig Charles as an actor, and I know that you have uh, some opinions about this. Uh, particularly in in series one, uh, would you would you care to uh, elucidate on uh, your feelings about Craig Charles as an actor? I'm just mad about Craig Charles as an actor, particularly in series one. I think he's brilliant. I really do. I, I think it's some of the best, you know, comedy TV performance I've ever seen, and particularly in this episode. That he's he's so exciting at this point. You know, he he's always good right the way through. I think um, the the show, but certainly in the first two years, there's something so instinctive and and exciting about the performance and he's he's got that poet's awareness of the rhythm of language and stuff like that um and yet he is not self-aware enough about being an actor so it feels very organic and natural it does yes very natural indeed yeah um i, I just I, I just i could just watch him forever i mean I, I i have one line reading for you and that is just the word alone yeah um yeah which i and the I, I agree with you about that, but also the the wonderful way he delivers the lines in the scene where he's arguing with Holly about Rimmer being brought back, and Holly says, um, "You know, you you shared you, you it's the long the largest um, relationship you had, which is very telling, actually, isn't it? Um, you know, it's um, fourteen million words all told, more words between you and Rimmer than anybody else." And he says, "Well, seven million of those were me telling him to smeg off." And the other seven million were him putting me on report for telling him to smoke. And the way the way Craig Charles does that scene, it's just it's just fabulous. He's brilliant in that scene. 
Well, and what I ultimately love about this episode is... Um, oh, and the scene where he threatens Rimmer as well. The okay, that's... Okay, okay, Rimmer. Sorry, Shane, I didn't mean When I say okay, I mean okay. (laughs) Is that a threat? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm sorry, I don't... Adding more A's. Um, (laughs) It's when you you mean it to mean what I mean it to mean, Rimmer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Rimmer, this is a black card situation. It's so funny because so authentic it's so authentic and i mean the writing is so there like the i i'm sure there is some amount of improvisation going on here but uh the dialogue is just so snappy i think chris berry and craig charles what they do in this episode what is ultimately really fascinating to me is you see that they bring out the best in each other in a weird way by bringing out the worst in each other because they are constantly challenging each other. And that challenge, even though they may not like each other very much, it keeps them going. And what would have happened if, you know, they had the Kachansky hologram you know, there's only so yeah. much you can do with the hologram. Uh, would would she have sat there and, like, Lister would have died within a year having smoked all his cigarettes and not paying attention to the food and whatever? Um, so there's just, a, again, there's such a tight balance there. Um, and I love Craig Charles' performance so much, but I feel like in this situation, since I'm usually the fangirl over Craig Charles, I would be remiss if I didn't stand up for how straight Chris Berry has to play it and how genuine he feels and that he's just like, oh, when he gets out of bed and starts pretending that he's already been awake hours and Lister's not even there. Yeah. I love that he's this straight laced, like you know, military guy, and he wakes up at like one forty five in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, that's such the, a telling detail, isn't it? You yeah. know, the truth about Rimmer that he that he can't admit to himself is that he is, in his own way, just as much of a, a goof off as as Lister is. He he's he he's so he's trying to be something that he fundamentally isn't. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, well, and it's make, it's making him incredibly unhappy. It's cognitive dissonance. You know, and it screwed him up totally. Um, and we can go into uh, we can go into the characterization of of uh, you know the background because it's it's very detailed. Yeah, um, and I think the more you learn about the characters, the more each of these little character decisions become important to me. But it's also like I don't want to reference future episodes. Mm. Yeah, we we actually do have at least one person, a friend of ours, who is following along with us as we are podcasting these. So I try. I mean, I usually don't really avoid spoilers, but I'm trying not to get too detailed with stuff that we're going to find out down the line. Um, it's it's also an interesting point that this was supposed to be episode two. Um, this was this was written to be the second episode. It was aired uh, in the third place because they moved Future Echoes, which was supposed to be episode four. To the to the second spot because they felt that they needed 
um, something a bit more visually interesting and a bit more overtly comic in the second spot to, to hopefully show the audience what the, what the show could do, you know, in terms of sci-fi and comedy and stuff like that, which is a good decision in many ways. But for yeah. me, for me, Balance of Power will always be episode two because actually if you put f- future echoes between um, the end and balance of power, you do actually kind of disrupt the developing relationship. To me, that the, the the state of the relationship between Rimmer and Lister in Balance of Power is so obviously, it you know, it's so raw, you know. And by by the time you get to Future Echoes, I think you can see the the um, the mellowing process has begun. The real order of Series One is the end, Balance of Power, Waiting for God, Future Echoes, and and so on. Um, so it's interesting because we don't really have anything very much in terms of character background by this point, at least in terms of how it was originally written. So this is very much an episode which is about starting to provide those details and hint at them and imply them, which I think it does incredibly well. It it foreshadows a lot of stuff that we learn about it, like, you know, Rimmer's issues with his parents and stuff like that. Right. Oh, Rimmer. And his parents. Uh, Yeah. Um, I also think the finer points of just understanding Lister doesn't just miss Kachansky. Lister misses his social life. Lister was a very social guy. He hung out with the guys who were goofy and drank and, you know, like he liked living it up. So living it up involves other people. I mean, he wants to go down to the to the bar to the pub and have a laugh, but like, what does he do? He he goes and he's and it's just him alone in this you know kind of scuzzy looking dance hall place, you know, hmm. where three well, million years in, ago people in that, were dancing. In that first scene, he's actually kind of he's not actually quite doing it, but he's kind of almost asking Rimmer to come with him, isn't he? He, I think that's what he wants. He wants Rimmer to come down with him because he knows there's nobody else. You know, as much as he can't stand Rimmer, Rimmer is the only other person around. And what I find really interesting about the flashback scene is that really Lister's life hasn't changed that much. And that's also something that's implied in the conversation with Holly, where Holly says, you know, I brought Rimmer back because he's the person you had the the biggest relationship with. You shared most of your words with him. I mean, Lister's life post the accident and and coming out of stasis and everything, it's not really all that different. Because back in the flashback, he's just hanging around with this relatively tiny group of guys who who are sort of in this in this corner. They're not they're not dancing with everybody else. They're not quite really socialising with everybody else. It's this little sort of you know losers club where these guys are just <laughs> in their own little in their own little world. And he's you know there's the, the Rimmer comes up and he has this bickering session with Rimmer, which is almost indistinguishable from the bickering sessions he's still having with Rimmer now, three million years into the future. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. And and um especially in the uh you know, again the book kind of uh uh retcons this a bit and then later on, you know, it, it gets retconned again. But um you know, he's also still pining after Kachansky. You know, he he, yeah. he he did not actually have a relationship with Kachansky. He's admiring no, that's... from from afar. Well, yeah. And that's so then when you look at so when you look at how Lister is and and I think this takes me back to when I say, like, when you really look at how they interact, they may not like each other, but they are good for each other um, because they are both outcasts from where they really wanted to be. Um, and they do both have perhaps shallow and unfulfilling relationships that they still miss. Um, 
but you get this sense that you know that that horrible idiom the more things change the more they stay the same mm. um well there's a recurring theme of kind of like they're they're going through the same patterns they had in life or in their in their former lives they're even well, though we're we're in this basically i mean you could view this as a post-apocalyptic society in a, in a sort of yes. like, weird way you know that is they're, they they've experienced this like holocaust of everyone dying and then they're just like they're just trying to pick up the pieces where they could where and uh have just decided you know what matters to to, to lister well is cigarettes and his lager and his you know <laughs> rastabilly ska you know that that's that's what he cares about and what does rimmer care about he cares about his salutes and his you know authority and you know uh, holding things over Lister's head, <laughs> and you know they've they've just kind of built this little microcosm of their old society, and I think it's interesting that I mean really you could say the whole of series one is really just exploring this basic idea. It's really interesting that you say post-apocalyptic because I I I really see a lot of the the because one of the really interesting um, sort of ambivalences about stories about post-apocalyptic stories is that they are fantasies. They are fantasies about total freedom and total autonomy. You know, the, the, the thing about being the last person alive, and there's lots of these stories, um, you know, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, and, you know, there's lots of zombie stories where there's there's a small group of people who are implied to be the last living people on the earth and stuff like that. There's, there's a lot of these stories. And one of the strange things about them is that although they are horror stories, and they, they ostensibly about the horror of loneliness, like Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. It's, it's very, it very much presents itself as a story about the corrosiveness of loneliness. And yet it's also a fantasy. It's also a fantasy of just being able to do whatever you want and go wherever you want and completely manage your own time, you know, and uh, like in the day of the Triffids, if you want something from a shop, you can just break the window and walk in and grab it, you know? Um, so that's really interesting. And the other thing you said was about, you sort of almost you said when they were alive well that's interesting as well because there's something that's almost like they're in the afterlife isn't it because mm -hmm. lister has sort of symbolically died in the stasis tube and come out after everybody else is dead and rimmer is actually dead he's actually a, a hologram so it is actually like they're ghosts hanging around and one of the things about ghost stories that's really interesting is that they're always about people who are sort of stuck somebody dies in a certain place the ghost is said to be stuck there and they go through the same motions over and over and over again and know? the idea that there is some kind of unfinished business and yeah. uh, there is some test to take and there is something you should be doing and you should be waking up at x in the morning and all these ideas of you know, what expectations am I supposed to meet day to day? Yeah, which is big for both Rimmer and Vista. Um, exactly. And and also the cat. I, I don't want to forget the cat because you get a sense. Of, I think one of the things that makes puts uh, Lister and um, Rimmer in such stark contrast to some degree is that you then also have the cat who like what is his biggest issue in life fish if i can get fish i'm happy oh i found something shiny i like shiny oh yeah put back the shiny and i can get as much fish as i want i'll put back the shiny um <laughs> like so there are so many and then he goes back and gets the shiny and gives it to lister later which is exactly what a cat would do exactly <laughs> Yeah, let me. Oh, you want the shiny? Sure, I'll give you the shiny. I got the fish. There, there are all these different viewpoints. You get Holly at times giving his 
uh, dry opinion. <laughs> and I think that that's why this show works so well for me, even though there are only four dudes, really. And this episode gets to explore so many different concepts, even though it's really primarily a, a pretty straightforward story. Uh, it's not a complicated story they're telling. It's always well, the ideas that they bring into this story. What, what I'm, I marvel at the writing sometimes because the, the storylines are incredibly simple. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, there's the, certainly these early ones, they're so thematically dense. They're so well characterized. There's so much going on in these 25 to 30 minutes of very, very simple plot of just four guys walking around some corridors. Sometimes, I, you know, the, the writing is it just blows my mind. I think, you know, this is incredible stuff. You were saying about the, 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 this is actually, it's interesting to watch the early seasons and watch some of the things that will become the preoccupations of the show starting to appear. Like, um, you, you start in, even in series one, you start to get the, the recurring theme about people meeting themselves. That happens in Future Echoes. It happens in Me Squared. It happens in a way in um, Confidence and Paranoia. And in this one, you get the first appearance of the theme of being tested, um, your your life being evaluated, which is, you know, it pops up in lots of subsequent stories, most obviously in The Inquisitor. Yeah. Um, and that's that ties into what I think we were, we were saying earlier about this being a, almost an afterlife. You know, and I mean, <laughs> there's a way in which Rimmer is almost like one of the people in um, in the 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 the, the fantasy nightmare of um, Rocco's Basilisk, which of course Phil has written his book about lately, because he is he is somebody who has been resurrected by a future AI, and who is certainly in this episode almost at least in a sense being tortured by it. Um, you know, this, that, that, that was that AI. was an element I was going to bring up, Jack. So. All right, yeah. so the, the AI in this story and and in other stories in this in this series puts Rimmer through hell. Um, I mean, I, I I love the way Rimmer's condition as a hologram reflects his personality, like he's, you know, his insecurity, his fractured self, and um, I mean, literally his loneliness because he can't touch people. R Rimmer cannot touch people. And that is a perfect expression of the fact that this man is closed off and self-involved and incredibly lonely. Um, and the thing I was getting at before is they're, they're in the afterlife and they're being tested to see if they deserve, you know, if they deserve to have lived, which, of course, is open in the Inquisitor. Um, but in this, it's, it's there in a more subtle form, like Rimmer is trying to justify his existence. But he's still trying to he's still trying to pass that bloody engineering exam. Despite the fact that he knows nothing about science and obviously has no interest in it whatsoever, so, so, so Jack, it's rut of trying to please his parents' expectations. So, so Jack, I, I do have a question. Still for trying you. to get Kachansky. Sorry, go on. What does the red spectrum tell us about quasars? <laughs> what is a quasar? <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, so man! Long line of flim flam, you know. Answer filler. Oh, well, in answering the question, and he just doesn't—he doesn't even know what a fucking quasar is. <laughs> and I just—I just feel so sorry for him. At the same time, I can't—you know—he's such an asshole. I hate him, but I also feel so sorry for him. Oh, how can you hate Rimsy? Oh, he's awful. I mean, I'm surprised you even ask in this episode where he violates Christine Kachansky's bodily autonomy. For instance, yeah, that takes the opportunity to look at her naked body while I'm, he's literally I'm, inhabiting it. 
I'm saving that for the end. Just uh, <laughs> so so we're, we'll we'll get to that. I I do want to save that to the end. There um, are lots of horrible things about Rimmer, but I think yeah. most of what his horrible things are are what make him most human still. And I think that the fact that what makes Rimmer most human is the fact that he is struggling with being a hologram. Yeah. Uh, is, I mean, like, it is the best, it is a long-running joke, and it's, like, a key point of the show. <laughs> yeah. And even though we do hate him, and he is an asshole, I, I just... I don't know. There's something that makes me want to forgive him, even that. And we can talk about that when we get to it. Well, if I'm honest, it's Rimmer I empathize with much more than Lester. You know, I, I, I feel more kinship to Rimmer. Yeah. Well, ass, assholery and all. In many ways, I'm quite like Lester. I'm a bit, I'm, I'm slob, I'm a bit of a slob like Lester, you know, in some ways. I'm not, um, I'm not the sort of person who, um, desperately wants to be an authority or, or an officer or anything like that. I don't share that pathology with Rimmer. But in many ways, I, do empathize, which is one of the reasons that I go off the show heavily in later seasons, because Rimmer just becomes the endless butt of jokes, you know, and they seem to, the show seems to lose its sympathy for him. Um, yeah. But yeah, but the, yeah, as you say, he's struggling with being a hologram. And, and what I would want to stress there is that his hologrammatic status is incredibly metaphorical for all the things that are wrong with his personality. You know, like the, the, as I say, the, the inability to touch people seems to me to be a direct metaphor for his his personality. I would, I would, I would agree with that. Um, and, I mean, you know, it is, it is kind of fundamentally. I mean, he's fundamentally the most isolated a human being could possibly be because it's not yeah. just he can't touch other people. He can't touch anything, and in fact, he can yeah. only yeah. touch himself or other like objects, you know, created especially for him. And there's uh, a there's, yeah. there's there's a bit in this episode where he gets Peterson's arm stuck on his body mm. and it, it actually hits him in the balls and he's crumpled on the floor and the, and the cat's just laughing at him. And he says under his breath, I hate everything. That's about as bleak as television gets. You know, that is so cold and bleak and miserable. That moment. It's like, you know, it's like tragic, absurdist theater. Mm. Um, well, marketed a... as sci-fi comedy for teenage boys. Uh, th that was that line was definitely in my notes, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I I was. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Don't don't you feel like that in the flashback scene when Rimmer approaches Chen and Selby and Peterson and and Lister at the table in the party? Don't you feel that if he sat down, they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't chuck him out? They wouldn't say go away. He he could sit down and and be one of them. He could. You know, they rag him. They rag him desperately, but he's, he he can't take that because he, he's so insecure. Well, they if rag could, each other. I mean, they're, they they're, rag they're... each other. Exactly. They, exactly. <laughs> I if can name just... 90 men who slept with Kachansky. <laughs> Slut shaming. But, uh... <laughs> yes, exactly. No, agreed. <laughs> but, yeah, he, he could be a part of that little group, you know, that, that I think because he goes to them, doesn't he? He goes to see them at the party. Yeah. So there's this sense in which he wants to be part of that little group. And yet the slightest bit of ragging, the defenses go up because he's so insecure and, and he can't he can be part of it is by saying like, well, you're fucking with my stuff. Yeah. And th there is this kind of just mercilessly uncool kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, which was me, which was me at school. <laughs> <laughs> But I, what I love about Lister and and his friends is I, I don't think that they judge him for being an asshole or for being kind of a prick um, and 
having all these things. They judge him for not being able to turn it off. They judge yes. him for not being able to relax. Yeah. Um, and for and doing ridiculous things like spending months on the revision timetable without actually doing any revising, which right. is ridiculous. You can't blame people for laughing at you if you behave like that. But you don't, you don't, I don't feel that there's malice there or, or you know, if, no. if Rimmer could just bring himself to laugh along with the joke and say, yeah, I know that was a bit stupid, wasn't it? He could sit down and be part of that group. But he's just so uptight. He's so yeah. tightly wound. He can't do it. And Lister just, I never feel. You know, I believe Lister every single time when he says in this episode that after a night of Kachansky, he'd turn Rimmer back on. That's something I was going to ask you, actually. Do we believe that? I And I genuinely think I do, because one, I think that reality would be really fucking depressing, getting to have be with someone that you had feelings for and they're a fucking hologram. But two, I, I just feel like Lister, beneath it all, respects that Rimmer's just kind of a douche. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's a good guy. He means well. He just, he doesn't have his priorities straight. And well, Lister, crucially, is not unaware of his own failings. Yeah. Because he hasn't got an incredibly fragile ego like Rimmer. Rimmer has to deny every single one of his failings because the slightest failure, his ego collapses, which undoubtedly goes back to his childhood. R Lister hasn't got that. Lister can just admit that he's that he's flawed, um, mm -hmm. which is why he can also, you know, to an extent, just accept Rimmer's flaws as well. But it's it's interesting about because I don't I really don't think Lister's thought this through because you bring Kachansky back you've got to kill one of them haven't you essentially you, you you if you turn rimmer off and you don't bring him back you've you've, you've essentially killed him he is a he is a, an artificial intelligence at this point but still i mean and yet if you've brought kachansky back just for one night and then you say to her well now i've got to turn you off now that there is an issue there that lister just hasn't thought about at all he's he's not really thinking about kachansky at all is he he's thinking about himself one of the things that that i've come back to and, and something that I said in the first episode of, of this podcast was just how much that um, Kachansky is just a representation for Lister of this, of this lost future that he has and this lost, um, you know, it, you know, you're right. It's not about Kachansky. He's not thinking about Kachansky's feelings and how Kachansky will feel no. coming back. Like, Hey, wake up. Everybody's dead. You get to go on a date with me for four hours. You can't touch anything. And then like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm going to kill you and then bring River back. Which, which is a bit creepy, isn't it? You know, I chose to bring you back as a hologram because I wanted to spend a night with you because I've always had a crush on you. Isn't that a bit creepy? You know, I, <laughs> if it's, you think about it. it's creepy and, and, and it feeds into that very kind of rom-com situation. Creepy. Mm, yeah. Well, what if you, I mean, think about it this way. Any person that Lister, even assuming that, like, say Holly had given Lister the ability to choose, okay, you can bring back anybody you want. Imagine being that person who's brought back, and you're only brought back in order to, at the at the will of, you know, the last man alive, right? Yeah. So the second he's bored of you, the second you annoy him, you know, it's, it's almost like uh, the uh, being banished out into the uh, the field by the uh, by Bill Mooney in the Twilight Zone, you know. <laughs> It's a bit unclear, actually, how much power Lister has over Rimmer, which is interesting in terms of the themes of the episode, isn't it? Yeah. It's like having Kachansky's disc would enable Lister to change the discs, but without it, he can't turn Rimmer off. 
which is a bit fuzzy. I mean, I don't mind that because obviously, you know, it's it, they've got thirty minutes to do a, a comedy riff on all this. But it is it it would be interesting to know exactly how much power Lister does have over Rimmer, because Rimmer Rimmer's you know desperate attempt to you know claw together some kind of authority over Lister would be interesting in that respect. But it's also interesting to me how much they talk about Kachansky like she's a thing. They, you know, give me Kachansky. And that's interesting in terms of this episode is very focused on stuff. There's a lot of talk about stuff, you know, from the cigarettes to the fish to the the, the rehydratable chickens and the the, the, the the haggis and all that. They talk about Kachansky like she's another one of those. Um, and, you know, in terms of a, an episode that just announces the fact that it's about power relationships, but mm-hmm. balance of power, it's called. And Rimmer is openly trying to use his control of the resources that he doesn't need, but Lister does to survive and have a, you know, any kind of decent life. In in that respect, it's very interesting that they talk about Kachansky like she's a thing and the sort of argue and barter over who controls it, you know. If there's if there's a blind spot in this episode, I think that's it. Unsurprisingly, of course, it's gender that's the blind spot. <laughs> right. So uh, since we have our, uh, you know, our Marxist friend, Jack, on, I, I thought I would uh, kind of talk about the economics a little bit here. Um, one of the things that we've kind of brought up a couple of times is the... Um, the fact that this is kind of a post-apocalyptic ghost world sort of idea. I find it Red Dwarf, particularly these first couple of years, because you've got these, you know, only a couple of characters in this kind of almost black box theater kind of atmosphere and environment. I find it like really easy to start like um, thinking of the characters in terms of kind of larger, you know, social movements or larger themes or kind of larger, like, you know, Lister represents the working class, etc. What I think is interesting here is that if you view sort of, um, you know, in my in my joke at the beginning, I kind of said, you know, Rimmer is literally holding this resource, cigarettes, which he doesn't need, but Lister does. Yeah. And he's doling them out to make Lister obey him. So so there, there's this, you know, he's, he's hoarding this, this resource, this scarce resource. He, but it's not a scarce resource. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of cartons of cigarettes. Rimmer is literally mm-hmm. just using the cigarettes. He's creating an artificial scarcity. And we know sure. that there's an artificial scarcity because he literally offers the cat all the fish you could ever want. Like that's the, that's the term he uses. Um, when he's, uh, so, I mean, I've kind of talked a little bit about the, the, like the food machines, you know, not really being like Star Trek replicators or whatever, but I mean, effectively in terms of, okay, there are three people on this ship and one of them doesn't have any need for food. Uh, there, there is this sense of like there is no since such a thing as scarcity anymore. So why can't we just all go fuck off and do what we want? Except <laughs> for Rimmer is just like creating this artificial demand. Which, you know, of course, the, the the sudden absence of scarcity and access to everything you can ever need—that's another part of the the fantasy that's inherent in the the post-apocalyptic story, the last man story. Yeah, right. I, but I I found myself really kind of uh, contrasting this, you know, the fact that he he doesn't want anything from the cat except for the cat to leave him the fuck alone. So he <laughs> just gives the cat whatever he wants. Like here, have all the fish you want. Go and like eat yourself to death if you want to. But he wants something from Lister. He wants Lister to obey him, and so he has to restrict his access to cigarettes, which is yeah. such a like, um, I don't know. It it just it struck me as such a. Um, hey it's just such a like personally petty thing to do but if you do kind of view it as this kind of like economic model it's just such a 
I don't know. It struck me as a very Marxist reading. Maybe that's me misunderstanding Marxism, but it struck me as this very kind of, uh, you know, remember representing the the uh, the capitalist class. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely a Marxist reading, or or on the way to being one. I'm not sure it's necessarily about capitalism, though. Um, I mean, I've got a note in, in, I've got a line in my own notes here, which says Rimmer controls list of via his monopoly on control of ships resources. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he is trying to do exactly that. And that is the basis, but it's not really the basis of capitalism particularly. I mean, a Marxist would say that, um, it's the basis of, cl- well, I don't want to speak for all of them, but, uh, I, I would say personally, it's, uh, I think the, the, the control of, resources and the creation of artificial scarcity and you know one clique that controls the resources and and catalogs them as well um and keeps track of them and doles them out and so on that's the basis of of class and hierarchy generally i think it's broader than just capitalism sure um if you try to make this about capitalism you run into the fact that really nobody on the ship is doing anything or working or producing anything and you you also run into the fact because this is heavily about class the entire first two seasons are, are very much about class um well i think probably the entire show is actually yeah. but this epi- this episode is like you know that squared or cubed you know because well, this is incredibly about people's different class positions and pecking orders and so on but nobody really in the story is actually um in i would say a capitalist worker relationship with anybody else i mean if you ask me rimmer is a member of the working class just as much as lister is it's just he you know he doesn't see it that way yeah, so yeah I, I would i would acknowledge i would acknowledge the, the basis of your reading but i would quibble with it <laughs> I, I, no i get that i guess get the scudders and their small act of resistance by watching a movie and flipping off rimmer behind his back oh, i love that <laughs> uh, so like even though i mean again the scudders are machines but apparently they have a better union uh <laughs> But and they are literally three little prong-like fingers, or finger-like prongs, whatever you want to call them. But they have so much personality, and they're like, "Fuck you, sure we're doing our job. Yeah, we're just watching movies." No, Rimmer literally says the line: "Scudders don't get time off. The scudders yeah. are slaves. Like mm-hmm. they are. You work twenty-four hours a day, except for when you're." charging or whatever like like i mean it literally is no you don't you can't sit and watch a movie despite the fact that we have no need for your labor at all the 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 rimmer is trying to force them back into a their kind of quote-unquote role on the ship but also forcing them to to work on his behalf Mm. Uh, but he's not he's not paying them in any way and he's certainly not profiting from them well, uh, except would, in terms that they are keeping the ship running i suppose i would uh, i would suggest that the uh the, the wage of cigarettes was kind of where i was thinking in terms of like rimmer is forcing lister to work for him you mm. know he's paying him a wage in turn you know in the form of the cigarettes and if you want to call that a wage or you know, I guess you could talk monetary policy if we wanted to, but I would get out of my depth very, very quickly in that yeah, I sp- conversation. I, sp- I suppose he is trying to make Lister work. That's true. In the first scene, he is he is trying to force Lister into a subordinate worker relationship to him. Yeah, um, I would say that if he's if he's trying to do that, then that is that indicates how vastly he has misunderstood his own position in the world. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> 
I don't think he's actually able to sustain an exploitative boss relationship with Lister as as a worker. I think it's just a fantasy. Like you know, his his Rimmer's entire life is taken up with fantasies of power and achievement and status. Because obviously he was he's the product of a of a of a, of a home where he is. Uh, you know, well, this is really interesting in terms of of the, of the British class system because you know from 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 a Marxist point of view, class is your relationship to the the means of production, distribution, and exchange. You know, if you have to work for a living, uh, then you're in the working class. Um, in terms of our experience of class socially and culturally, of course, it's a lot more, um, there's a lot more gradation, you know, and, and people's perceptions of themselves and other people come in. And I would say that this episode is much more about that than it is about actual economics. Um, so, I mean, as I say, I, Rimmer, Rimmer has to work for a living, you know, so he is as I would define him, a worker, you know, but he would, un he undoubtedly, his sort of household would be seen as uh, work, uh, middle class in relation to the, the, the background that, that Lister comes from. And I think that's very, just, it's not even subtext, you know, it's just the text. Um, but I think Rimmer is implied to come from sort of the very bottom of the middle class. That's all that likes to imagine it has kinship with the upper classes or the, or the, you know, the, 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 the top people and so on. And is very aspirational and tries to, tries to force those aspirations on their kids and stuff like that, which of course you, you, you see uh, you know, Rimmer is a brilliant portrait of how that sort of thing can make people desperately, desperately unhappy because it, you know, it fosters these unrealistic life goals and unrealistic expectations of themselves. I think, and, and certainly in this episode, I think it's really concentrated on in the flashback, you see the pecking order on the ship as it was and, and stuff like that. I mean, Kachansky is separated from all of them. You know, they 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 are all beneath Kachansky on the ship. Because she's an officer. Because she's an officer. She's yeah. a bridge and, officer. And Rimmer, despite the fact that Lister Lister's whole plan about countering Rimmer's attempt to, to to subjugate him is based on the idea that Rimmer is going to obey him, Lister, if he manages to become a chef. Um, actually, I I don't think that would work because if you look in the flashback. Um, Rimmer is incredibly disrespectful to Kachansky. It, it doesn't matter to him the slightest that she's an officer. He, he just, it, what is it he does? He, he picks up her handbag and chucks it across the room and speaks to her in, in grotesquely well, disrespectful I, terms. I, actually, so, I suspect that's Rimmer's inherent misogyny talking. That's know. definitely part of it. But, you know, the fact that she's an officer doesn't stop him doing that. And then later on, he projects his own, you know, his own neuroses onto her, doesn't he? Lister asks him about her and she says, yeah, she was snooty. She looked down on me, you know. Right. Um, so he's he's incredibly conscious of status. And I think that comes from the fact that he's from that sort of lower middle classes who are still not, you know, in the in the top drawer. They're still not the boss class. They're not uh, they're not at the top of society, but they because they're a bit higher than some other people. They like to they like to try to identify with the people at the top. And a lot of know. the ways that those people in the lower, at least here in the here in the states, I can't speak for for Britain, but I I do know some people who uh, people from that kind of lower middle class uh, who want to raise their status. One of the ways they do that is by joining the military. You know, through, through yeah. the military achievement. Yeah, and that's that's right <clears throat> the way through Rimmer's entire backstory is this pathological obsession with um, you know achieving glory or status within this quasi-military organization which is also interestingly a, a, a private company by the sounds of it the jupiter mining corporation um, no that's that's definitely uh, i think a uh you know they are a a private company operating uh these uh, start these spacecraft 
going from moon to moon, you know, mining minerals and such. I mean, it, yeah, I, 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 I think what the show is implying is is actually that the the sort of the space military uh, has been privatized. I think that's what it's implying. Certainly, if you, if you if you think of it in the context of late eighties Britain, I think that's probably what the writers were going for. That's I I I sort of almost connect it to uh, like joint stock companies in like the seventeenth uh, century. What? Sort of connected to, yeah, like, the East India Company. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I connected to. It, it's mining, so I mean, there there is that aspect of there's that too. Yeah, several la- layers of destitute labor. Labor, you know, when we talk yep. about levels yep. of class difference here, when you have those kind of impoverished communities, coal mining communities, like the jobs that nobody wants to do, but they support huge communities and families and generations. And there is not really a level that there is not some problem with, right? Mm. At least ideologically or, you know, um, the, the trickle down of of that situation is is pretty bleak, <laughs> and I think also the the, the weird sort of um, culture within the Jupiter Mining Corporation of you know it's it's a mining company. Um, it's in many ways it's manual labor. It's a manual industrial exactly. business they're in, they're involved in, but it also has this weirdly sort of middle class officer culture going through it. I think that's really interesting in terms of Britain in the late eighties. You know, in in terms of Thatcherism and the the, the vicious assault that the Thatcher government was waging on um, uh, on British industry and 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 working class communities. I think that's really keyed into okay. the to the time as well. Yeah, I I kind of have this mental image, and this is I mean you know that they. Nothing in, in that I've seen from Red Dwarf really gets into the details on this, um, even the books that I recall. But uh, I kind of get the, the the mental image that the actual mining is mostly done by machines, so that it's highly mechanized. And so essentially, you have a bunch of kind of uh, you know white color office workers who are just pushing buttons and making the mining happen. Yeah. Uh, with like a handful of uh, of people actually kind of operating kind of big machines sort of idea um <laughs> which actually if we're going to talk doctor who that's uh, pretty much what um uh the robots of death kind of kind of is about right yeah absolutely yeah which um, is interesting in terms of the idea of post-industrialism um where of course the industry is still there it's just sort of hidden around the corner while we pretend that business is all about um um you know selling brand identities and selling ideas and and uh stuff like that yeah yeah. No, I just I thought that that would kind of explain the sort of what what you put your finger on was the kind of middle classiness of the of the op, of the work. And yet it's, you know, at least hypothetically very, you know, grimy, grungy, uh, you know, fingernails in the dirt kind of mm. uh, an, op- an operation. Um, One of the things to talk about at Red Dwarf, of course, is the enormous influence of Alien. Um, the sort of the tr- the truckers in space aesthetic of the original Alien movie, which is really it's not quite the first big science fiction movie to you know have people in space in the future as as working class uh, blue collar people, but it's it's one of the first and it's one of the biggest and most significant and it's in, it's an enormous influence on Alien uh, on Red Dwarf I think Alien absolutely, which I will eventually write about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, the the I will eventually write about this and that. <laughs> Shanna has a list of those about about uh Shanna could make a book out of topics that she's going to write about one day. Yeah. 
Well, I have a I have a, a fairly long blogging project that I've now been planning for quite some time, which will probably now turn up later this year, start to turn up later this year, or possibly next year, about the Alien franchise. So awesome. there will certainly there will certainly be at least one post about, uh, or at least touching on Red Dwarf, I think, in that. We look forward to seeing that. Or at least I do. I can't speak for Shana. I don't give a shit. Shana, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have any thoughts about the uh, the kind of class issues and stuff that we've been talking about? Um, or have you just been kind of sitting and like letting the, the white men uh, just uh, kind of blather on? Oh, I tried to interrupt a couple times. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think I, I I see it kind of on a more simple level. I think you guys did a great discussion of kind of more economical terms, but just looking at strict class difference of, like I said, just having the cat who is a class of his own for multiple reasons um Lister, Rimmer, the Scudders, Holly, um and all the kind of uh there's the joke about how why Holly chose his face in this episode. Um and it's because it's the face of one of the greatest lovers of all time. Um so there are so many ideas of what is power, right? And mm. And that's what I think what really gets me about Red Dwarf is there are these class issues and they're there and they're relevant and they're contemporary and they're relatable, but they're not just there to be there. They're there because they poke at a bigger meaning of, well, just because you may be coming from a different class background, what kind of power do you have in, in, in your environment? So I don't know. I it's I I feel like I don't have a lot to say on it just because it's really good. <laughs> it it's it's really tightly written. I think that they cover a lot of bases. Um I think, you know, we'll get to the Kachansky issues. Um I really like the way that they weave in these little bits of their past history so that we do get a yeah. sense of this is how it was when they were alive and it's not so much different when they're dead except for, or, you know, when everyone else is dead, except for now they're lonely and what makes going and getting a beer after work fun? The fact that you're doing it with your friends. Hmm. Um, and so what, what's the power differential there? You know, how, how do you measure the fact that, your boss gets to control seeing you seeing your friends hypothetically, but your boss is also now controlling who you get to see period other than himself, but he has to face a life and death question because of it. Uh, there, I, I don't know. There are just so many different little things that you could like pick out and talk about that are really well done in this episode and I think continue to be explored throughout the show. Yeah. And it does kind of speak for itself, doesn't it? You know, in, yeah. it, it's in some ways that, you know, it's a bit, I almost feel a bit foolish to sort of try to tease these things out because I think it just, it just, it does itself really as you watch it. Um, and, 
it, it does it itself, and it also, I think what I'm paying more attention to this watch through, um, I mean, I know I appreciated the first time around. I think one of the things that I am most impressed about in this watch through is how much each episode raises questions about existence, really, uh, and life, but it doesn't feel like it's um, leaving any ends untied in the story. So the to the story gets to be very tight, compact, somewhat simple, um, but the ideas get to be big. And so once you're over with the episode, there's still so much that keeps going in your head. Um, and that, I think, is impressive writing, is this idea that we're not just writing episode to episode, we're writing to provoke ideas that may linger with you after you finish watching. And, you know, that's what I miss from a lot of my sci-fi now, is that there isn't that push to have really, truly provoking thought. Yeah, I mean, what it manages to do is it manages to be kind of philosophically interesting without being stuffy and boring. Exactly. You know, this isn't a Merchant Ivory production, you know? We don't have uh, people in drawing room chairs sitting around and talking about what is free will and, you know, what is yeah. what is death. It's, it's uh, you know... <laughs> I think it's got a lot more to say than your average example of that sort of thing, to be honest. Right. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it's not... Um, you know, one of the things that I... I, I listened to Shabcast 20, uh, Jack, and uh, I'll throw a link in the show notes, and one of the things that you and James discussed was the, was the word middle brow. Yeah, um, and I had—I mean, you used it in a, in a slightly different context, um, so I'm not—I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I—I I started thinking about middlebrow, what middlebrow means, and why it's such a um, an insult, <laughs> at least in the way that I use it often. Um, yeah, I think my use of it is a bit of an adaptation, actually. There is there is another use of it which is a bit sort of elitist and sneery, isn't there? Well, which is the way I use it. For me, for me, middlebrow means, or at least kind of the way that I. I kind of think middlebrow, the way that I use it, uh, is that it is uh, sort of like those Merchant Ivory productions where they are very comfortable and cozy to the kind of like wealthy white people who want to go and see movies about people with British accents who are mostly American actors who are putting on fake British accents <laughs> and in, in drawing rooms. And it makes us feel fancy and intelligent that we're watching these things that are based on these, you know, Jane Austen adaptations, but yeah. don't actually make any particularly interesting points about anything and are yeah. mostly devoid of any kind of historical context. I mean, it wanders around Italy yeah. looking at, you know, Renaissance paintings. And so you assume, therefore, that it must be profound. Yeah. Right, right. You know, it, it's... <laughs> so, okay, it's... before you make me wince too much harder about Jane Austen... Um... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not insulting Jane Austen. I'm insulting uh, people who have a very shallow reading of Jane Austen. At that well, yeah. I, there's, there's Austen I have a different Austen. analogy that I would like to use. Okay. The first time I went to Hollywood with a group of school, like I went for like a school trip and I had been there before, but all of these people were from like Texas. And there was a girl next to me on the bus who would ask me what was important so she could take a picture of it. And there's this idea of wanting to know 
like you feel you know what's important that Downton Abbey has somehow raised your understanding of life in some great way instead of just being an entertaining drama which wonderful whatever but we don't give that same kind of middle brow praise or dispraise <clears throat> to things that are perhaps lowbrow and own it and can be enjoyable in a different way. Well, virtually everything that we would now kind of classify as like quote unquote prestige television sort of fits into this like middle brow moniker, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it kind of fits in this like, yeah, it's kind of made for, for the quote unquote the masses to watch, but it's like, oh yeah, you're kind of bright and you have a Netflix subscription and you're, you know, you, you read salon articles and you're, you know, you, you drink Starbucks or no, you don't drink Starbucks cause that's the uh, corporate man. You got to drink the, the local, you know, whole grown, you know, you've got disposable income, but it's so like pointed at that particular segment of society and it's you know, kind of engaging in, you know, the uh, comforting people with those biases. Whereas something like, and I'm getting it back to Red Dwarf here, you know, Lister just throws off a Sartre reference just because. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's not like he, he's, he's got, you know, <laughs> I, actually, I believe uh, Holly throws out the reference and then uh, Lister not only gets the reference, but then says, yeah, but all his mates were French. So, yeah. of course, he thinks hell is, you know, <laughs> hell is being in a room with all your friends. Um, I uh, uh, that is just such a good joke, though. Yes, exactly. Can we just? That's a brilliant joke. Well, and then also the classical music with what was it, Bach, something, and Motorhead. Yeah, sorry, Mendelssohn and Motorhead. That whole riff over the music is fantastic. Yeah, like the the idea that working class music has now got a government health warning on it. You know, that, that Lister just ignores, but Rimmer takes totally seriously. Like, literally, contact with working class culture can actually kill you. It's so toxic. And he's, he's saying, listen to this, th- listen to the classical stuff I like. And he lists Motorhead, which, you know, <laughs> he, he, to him, he doesn't question it. You know, in, in, the, in the centuries that have gone by, it's become something that they call classical. And well, now Rimmer uses that as a sign of his superior cu- cultured identity. Did that you is know, so did you know the sign? Like at the dance club, like in the flashback, did you notice what the, what the uh, what the theme of the night is? Oh God, I can't remember. What it's is it? It's a nostalgia night for the 1990s. Yeah, meaning yeah, that the, they're the, literally the having nostalgia is, for 200 years ago. The clothes, yeah, <laughs> the clothes they're wearing aren't that far off the 1990s. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, the sauce joke is fantastic. Uh, I mean, I and I think the fact that. They are constantly poking at the fact that Lister may be a slob and he may not have many aspirations, but that doesn't mean that if he tried, he couldn't actually achieve something. Mm. Um, well, that's an interesting question. Would he have Would he have passed the chef's exam? Do you think if if Rimmer hadn't um, hadn't disrupted him by walking in disguised as Kachansky? I like to think he would have done. It almost doesn't matter to some degree because you have Rimmer who has failed the test that he can't even study for. Yeah. And you have Lister deciding on a whim to study for an exam 
and not even studying super well and still probably i do think he probably would have passed well later on we definitely see him like uh you know flying the the starbug and other sorts of things i mean you know lister is not a dumb guy he's just kind of lazy and unmotivated you know Mm. um well and i think that there becomes an argument as we watch more of the show is is lister lazy or is lister just simple he just doesn't want for much he doesn't care about much he knows that no one else can smell him or see him um not to say that he wasn't a slob beforehand um but ultimately he has a bullshit dream about taking a cat and moving to fiji um, and it was also always kind of a bullshit dream, but sometimes you make those dreams work. I mean, we have a friend who for years was like, I'm moving to Hawaii. My sister's there. I go visit her every year. And there was a part of me that never thought it was going to happen. And it happened. So like, I, I kind of get that feeling from Lister, this idea of he knows he's holding himself back. Um, in some ways, but now he's trying to just move forward in whatever way he can. Um, and I think that that's what makes him so appealing. While as Rimmer wants to be stuck in the way that it's always been, um, and that really wouldn't get them anywhere. Hmm. I think Lister's one of those many, many people at the bottom of society who recognizes that the whole the whole system above them just fundamentally isn't made for them. You know, yeah. he, he, he looks at the whole sort of system of exams and tests and ranks and, and prestige and all that that Rimmer desperately wants to climb to assuage the parents that still live in his head, no doubt. Um, and, and Lister just sees, that's not for me. That's got nothing to do with me. That's not set up for me. You know, that, that they tell me that, uh, there's meritocracy and whatever. He just sees straight through that, I think. So I, I think like a great many people who seem lazy and unmotivated, I think it's just that he's looked at it very, in a very clear eyed fashion and said you know i am not going to be able to climb that ziggurat as as rimmer calls it you know that it is fundamentally set up for me to not be able to climb it uh i think that's what's going on there well i i i agree with that i think that lister is lister is our representation of the counterculture you know yeah in, in that very you know he he is our representation he, i mean He's basically a hippie, right? You know, I mean, it's well, one of the things I like about him is that he's 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 actually he's got a, a very clear moral center um, that keeps on coming out. I mean, do we think that if he if he passed the chef's exam, he would actually have carried through on those threats he makes and actually sort of tormented Rimmer? I think he maybe would have done he... it for a day or two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's there's a wonderful bit in um, Me Squared where he puts, you know, Rimmer has just been driving him around the bend that morning and he finds Rimmer's death video and he puts it on and he's like, yeah, like he's going to enjoy watching Rimmer die. And then when he when it actually comes up on screen, he just, brilliant bit of acting again from Craig Charles. He looks disgusted with himself he just says off and turns away from the screen like you know he thought he was going to enjoy it. But of course he didn't in the end because there is this moral center to the man. Um, which I, I really like. I really like. And I think Craig Charles puts that across really well in this episode as well as in other ones. I love his disgust when he realizes that Rimmer is inside Kachansky, so to speak. That's sort oh. of, yeah, who does? <laughs> well, let's, uh, before we get into that, Jack, uh, did you, you said you had a bunch of notes. Uh, what did, lay them at me. What do you, what do you have uh, here you want to discuss before we get into this uh, Kachansky uh, rape situation? I think I've actually crowbarred most of them in so far, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I did want to mention one idea, which is the idea of Lister as being unemployed. We, we were talking about Red Dwarf in the context of its of its time. One thing that I think it's, it's this show is definitely on about, particularly in the first year, is the idea of unemployment. Because, um, mm. uh, you know, in, in terms of Thatcher's Britain in the 80s, um, I think that must have, it must have struck a chord with a lot of people watching this guy who's just, he's hanging around with literally nothing to do. You know, his job has gone. Uh, and and I think there's there's always that fantasy of of autonomy that's in the end of the world story, and yet at the same time in this there's it's it, it's humiliating for him. You know he's not he's not just lonely, but he's sort of and bored, but he's humiliated. I think by it, isn't it? Isn't he? Um, and I, I think that's something that the show loses sadly as it goes on, as it gets more because it gets more full of incident. One of the things I like about these early episodes is that there's, there's particularly this one, there's really not much going on except these people are talking to each other. To that, yeah, that might not fit in, but that, uh, that's. No, no, I, I, I like that. And we I, did. I, you're right that you're right that he kind of. Uh, I mean, he is kind of like. I mean, they call him a bum and they call him a, you know a slob, et cetera, et cetera, which are the exact words that people use to describe the unemployed. Well, mm. if you just if you just worked harder, you'd have a job, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, which well, that's another... a paradox, right? You know. Yeah, exactly. Which is another example of Rimmer buying the the, the myth of the ziggurat, you know, and and uh, and then using that as a stick to beat Lister with. Um, and you mentioned the the Sartre joke as well. I'd love to get back to that. I think, especially with the Sartre joke, and I'm I'm not even going to try and do the actual French Sartre, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to call him Frenchy. Uh, that's you know. I think what is so funny about Jean-Paul. this show. Yeah, old JPS. Um, <laughs> Budio. but like for real, uh, there there is throughout the show this kind of understanding one that the people writing this show are the kind of people who can make a Sartre res- reference, right? You know, there yeah. there's that little part of that. But the fact that the Sartre joke is then given to Lister, it, you get this kind of dual nature of Lister early on, where he sees himself as this cool dude, um, or at least a schlubby loser who doesn't give shits. Um, but I'm pretty sure he was like a geek at some point, right? Does I mean, do you guys get that? Yeah, maybe with his music. He's probably a rock geek or a, a reggae geek or something like that. Yeah, well, we he, learned later on he had a band when he was like yeah. seventeen. Oh, that's true. Yeah, of course. And and so I always get this feeling with Lister that while some may say he has unfilled potential, he may have say, said like, "No, I saw my potential and I thought I didn't really care." Um, <laughs> and again, the balance of power being in that situation well Rimmer has always wanted the ability always wanted that potential and that's what he's never had so Rimmer likes to hold on to this power but it's it's just threadbare how that becomes its own kind of philosophical dilemma uh is one thing that I really like I guess I, I don't know I feel like I was going to say something wittier about it, but that was about it. It was just like, yeah, that part was good. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about the Sartre joke is how, how you know, they obviously know what they're talking about because you have 
Well, firstly, this show is it's kind of about four people at the moment. It's four people stuck together in a box and they can't get away from each other. And and even in the flashback sequence, you have Lister and his friends sat at the table and there's four of them. And of course, there are four characters in the Sartre play uh, Hui Klo, from which the, the reference comes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're stuck to, basically there's three people in the room and they have the valet don't they who is I think it's implied that the valet is is also a deceased spirit who's kind of got a job unlike the people stuck in the room but right. the people stuck in the again the afterlife we were talking about it's almost an afterlife this 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 after the apocalypse on red dwarf and these people four of them stuck together forever and um yeah it, it's it's a very you know it's not just a um it, 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 it Holly makes it into your friends so that Lister can have the joke about all his mates were French, but it's it's still a very pertinent reference. You know, it works, yeah. and it's about that that play is misunderstood, I think, because a lot of people think that it's about um, how bad you know unpleasant relationships can be. Uh, I don't think that's what Sartre's getting at at all. I think he's saying that you know there there is something hellish about our eternal and inevitable awareness of how other people see us you know the fact that we we can never define ourselves except in terms of how other people see us and i think that's that's really what if you get right down to the bone of it i think that's what this episode is doing it's about the fact that you can never escape your own awareness of how other people see you you know mm-hmm. lister simply cannot be unseen by rimmer or the other way around. And Kachansky can't escape being seen by all these blokes around her and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And that ties in with what, what you were saying about Holly choosing his face from among the, the greatest lovers and all this sort of thing. I, I just really appreciate, you know, I love a philosophical joke, but even more so, I love it when it's more than just a reference and it actually makes sense because somebody yeah. knows what they're talking about. It, yeah, it, it actually does. It actually, you know, it would it would be a different joke if it was Heidegger. You know, like it, it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I find what I, what's really interesting for me in, in talking about, um, the, the kind of social element. I, I did kind of make reference to everyone is dead on the ship. Um, and for me, you know, there is this kind of like man as a political animal, man as a social animal kind of concept. And when there is no more society, how do, how do we then define ourselves? Mm. And that, that, you know, list, lister is, is having to learn how to redefine himself and define his own goals. And his goal is, okay, we're going to go back to earth and go back and I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, you know, raise horses on, on Fiji. That, that was what I always wanted. But I think one of the things that we do learn as we, as the show continues is, you know, that, that Lister does kind of find different things to want and he does find different kind of ways of self-determination now that the, these kind of strictures of society have been stripped away. And I think it's really clear in this episode, this is kind of a turning point in the show where we are kind of going from this very um, hierarchical structure that uh, Lister is kind of coming from and that Rimmer is trying to still enforce. Um, you know, you don't really hear much about like the report book after this, you know, you, no. you, you don't, you don't yeah. hear, you know, this is kind of the last straw for that. Like once Lister proves his willingness to upset the power structure, uh, a lot of that starts to fade away. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, uh, I think that's kind of profound, honestly. Yeah. Well, it does what all absurdist theater does, which is it, it represents to us how absurd our normality is. Um, and uh, you know, it does it in quite a literal way by saying these structures of power are now obsolete, but people are still clinging to them. But I think it still works, really, as, as sort of televised absurdist theatre. 
um, because it, it shows people running around in these absurd little circles without really knowing what they're doing because they are renegotiating their relationship in terms of this new reality and they are trying to create a new way of living in this new reality but neither of them know that that's what they're doing what they think they're doing both of them in their different ways is trying to hold on to the old reality rimmer wants to carry on and you know finally pass the exam be an officer boss lister around lister wants to get kachansky at last you know um what they're actually doing although they don't know it is demonstrating to themselves how absurd those aims actually are and i you know that that that's that's Beckett, that's Godot, that's Pinter, you know. What? Which there's always been some of that British sitcom, which has always been about people sort of stuck together in absurd situations, even though they hate each other. And that's as I say, that's Pinter and waiting for Godot and stuff like that too. Well and and I look at, you know, all of the issues that I have because I'm just gonna move there. All of the issues that I have with Kachansky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's time. We're we're on to Kachansky um, now. The reason that I forgive them is because she does start to stand in as this archetype of the poetic muse, the kind of, um, you know, Dante's Beatrice, uh, who he wrote like hundreds of poems to or whatever. There is this idea of me where if we are looking at this as this show that deals with surrealist and existential topics to have the idea that Lister has chosen a muse to continue his journey sometimes makes the commodification of her less hard to deal with. But I I think, um, uh, yeah, I'll start there. I, th- I think that's a great point, yeah, because um, she's quite archetypical, and the whole situation is quite archetypical. So really the one thing you should never do is actually have Kachansky turn up and join the crew and turn it into a sort of rom-com about people who don't really like each other but are eventually going to end up together. Just don't ever do that. And, and yeah. certainly <laughs> you shouldn't recast the glorious Claire Grogan when you do that. No. Yeah. Thank goodness nobody actually tried that in the show's history. Nobody would ever be silly enough to do something like that. Hello, Quizzy. <laughs> Quizzy has joined us. That was perfect timing, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so um, I maybe I'll add briefly, really quick. Um, Daniel has been listening to the Happy Birthday song. I've been listening to uh, Alternate Images, uh which it was a uh, Claire Grogan fronted that band. It, it's Happy Birthday, right? Yeah, that's the that's the that that song. Uh, that on top of the pops is going to be the song we go out on on this episode. So if I want me. So, anyways, <laughs> she is adorable. She yeah. is one of those character, um, not even characters, just human beings. This actress. She walks on, she has attitude, she has character, she has depth, she has personality. Uh, even when Rimmer's being a dick and picks up her purse, because, and, and I, I do like this reference, the fact that he did something that is so realistic of like girls dance with their purses at their feet so that they don't have to like hold them. And the fact that Rimmer would, like, look at her in the eyes, reach down to her feet, pull her purse, and toss it out. Yeah. And her, like, Just ignore her. Don't worry about it. 
That's how that's how that's how Kuzi feels about uh, Rivers' actions in the yeah. dance hall. Yeah, um, she honestly, she only sounds like she's in pain. She's a Bengal. They just sound like that. She's fine. Oh yeah, no, that's not pain. <laughs> that's just like hey. Um, no, but we do get a brief moment uh, with Kachansky here, where like she and her friend kind of look at each other and are like, "Uh, what the fuck was that all about?" Yeah, and so. There, there is a part of me that feels for Lister. This idea that she is, she was a motivation for him. She is a kind of muse to him, and there is a part of him that wants to see the reality. Well, I get that. There's this, this. I mean, I could see being in this situation and being like, "Oh, there's this person that I kind of always liked from afar, and I'd like to get to talk to them mm-hmm. now that." I have the rest of my life in front of me and see if there was anything there and just, just, just see. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it's not, it's not unreasonable to some degree that he's not necessarily thinking in terms of, and then if there's nothing there, I'll just have to kill her. You know, I mean, he's, I, you know, I think you could well, say he's, you know. <laughs> I, I think that that's the genius of the episode really is that she doesn't start off being trivialized. And Rimmer doesn't start off being trivialized, really. I mean, more than usual. But as the episode goes on and um, Lister's making his argument and you see how Rimmer treated her and how Lister's treating Rimmer and you see these parallels start popping up and you really do start thinking, what, what is he really asking for? What is the breadth of this? And what is the value of one conversation, if that really is all he wants? Mm. So it 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 is both kind of creepy and obsessive. And the the more that he he focuses and gets hyper focused on it, it becomes less healthy. <laughs> well, and this is also like technology that exists in their world. I mean, you know, so for us today, the idea that you can like wake someone up and have a a conversation with them is obviously, you know, fantasy or spiritualism or whatever. But I will connect it to spiritualism, the idea that, like, oh, I'm going to bring the dead ghost of my mom back and talk to her one last time and have her say she loves me or something. Um, I mean, we think of that as, as like, oh, well, then she goes off into this this other land to the, to, to the afterlife or what have you. But, I, I you know, there there is this sort of sense that, you know, just because, like, okay, so maybe he can't bring her back forever, but he could, like, always, the disc is still there, he could kind of keep bringing her back or something, you know? I think that that's kind of where his mindset is, is like, well, if the date goes well, then I can, like, you know, oh, like, every Saturday night, I have a Saturday night date with Kachansky. And that's still, like, definitely, you know, the women in refrigerators chick, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, you know, we bring the woman out of the box when, you know, I'm horny, essentially. This yeah. is a, this is problematic. Um, I, I I get the feeling that, and this is probably completely down to Claire Grogan actually, that Kachansky's hologram just wouldn't put up with that. You know, if if Lister put that forward to her, she would just say no. Well, imagine <laughs> imagine if there was. I mean, just to suggest, you know, kind of an alternate direction this could have gone. Uh, imagine if we did say, okay, well, maybe we can have two holograms. He brings back Kachansky, and then Kachansky is just kind of like. Yeah, I'm not into you, but like I still like being alive, so let's uh, you know, let's go to Earth together, sort of thing. Yeah. And then suddenly that could <laughs> then uh, you know, Kachansky and Rimmer could touch each other because they're both holograms, 
but they have no <laughs> desire to ever do so. <laughs> which would, which would, I mean, you know, adding a woman would always be a better idea. That's kind of the suggestion. Well, I'm and, and I think that that's, I mean, the larger point is Kachansky, the failure of Kachansky is that there is not enough of her right. pre-death. And I think if she had been the same cut character when she comes back in the future, no spoilers, uh, if, or if she'd been the same character, rather, it, it could have been more interesting. But seeing as how, like, we see her get this treatment in this episode as just, there is this aspect of holograms being treated kind of like artifacts. They're not quite living. They're not quite dead. They have innate value. But that there is something slightly different in the way we would treat them. And I think that the the finer notes of how the hol- hologram technology works um, as we watch more of the show um, kind of starts to expose just how difficult it really would be to ask someone to say, hey, go die for a night. Um, or switch off. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I like the idea of saying removing the hologram is just killing them again because they're not really them as a hologram, but they are, but they aren't, but they are, but they aren't. Well, I don't the, the, the question of like who Remmer is, Remmer really Remmer is Remmer a simulation of Remmer, et cetera. There, there will be places to kind of discuss that down the line, but I, I mm. do. I do want to talk about how Rimmer treats Kachansky's body, because I think this is something we absolutely should talk about here. Um, because he literally appropriates her, her body. Even though it's not her body, Kachansky is dead, it's a simulation of Kachansky's body. But he absolutely is, like, walking around her skin. I mean, not even metaphorically, that's what he's doing. And this is a deeply creepy thing for Rimmer to do, and it's a deeply creepy thing for a show to present to us in, in sort of a, a ha-ha funny way without a lot of uh, commentary on it, from my perspective. Why yeah, it's would... creepy? Like, I want to hear your explanation of why it's creepy. Well, it's Rimmer inside Kachansky's body using a female form for his... Using a particular person's female form and the relationship or lack thereof that this woman had with this other person you know, for his own benefit. Right. I mean, he, so he's literally he's, sock puppeting her. He's using her image. Yes. Well, but, so, it's a Kachansky disguise. Sure. And, and I understand that it goes a step further. But, yeah, Jack, how do you feel about it? Now I'm curious to hear how you guys feel first. I, I think if it was just him taking on Kachansky's form, that would be one thing. That would be a bit like um, when people online um, use somebody else's photograph, you know, which is not unproblematic. Don't get me wrong, but you know that there are there are far worse things. I think there's a there's because Kachansky's sentience or the replica or simulation of Kachansky's sentience, whatever we want to whatever we want to say, these artificial intelligences are 
if if at the base minimum, it's a simu- it's a self-aware simulation of Kachansky's personality, memories, and intelligence. Right? Um, that's not actually involved at all, as far as I can tell. He doesn't resurrect her her brain, no, her mind, her personality, her feelings, her emotions, her awareness at all. So there's a sense in which she would never know about what's happening, you know, and in a sense, it, it, well, I mean, without the mind there, it, it kind of isn't even happening to her. It's the manipulation of an image. I can see the creepiness of it, of wearing her skin. But of course, we are talking about a simulation made of light. Um, the problem, I think, comes in. Well, obviously, there's the bit where he actually peeps down her down her shirt. You know, that's yeah. that's different. That's looking at somebody's private photos without their permission, even if they never know about it. That's wrong. So I think that's the best analog for that. Um, the other thing is, you know, like um, you know, they they leak um, private photographs of pop stars and and, and skeevy yeah. guys down da- da- uh, movie stars and skeevy guys download them. You know, the fappening and all that stuff. That's akin to that, I think. <laughs> The other thing I think is the really revealing moment is when Lister says that's that's not Kachansky and Rimmer inside Kachansky's body says it's Kachansky's voice, it's Kachansky's body, what's the difference? Well, I think that's enormously revealing, isn't it? Rimmer, Rimmer yeah. just thinks women are their bodies. And, he, doesn't, well, he literally doesn't understand Lister's objection. It's almost as if Rimmer doesn't understand that the thing about Kachansky, that it's, it's more than just the way Kachansky looks that, that Lister is attracted to. Well, and um, I so think I, that that's what's interesting, though, is there is a lot of question um, throughout the episode of what is Lister attracted to about Kachansky if he really hasn't had a relationship with her. Yes, but the very fact that he knows full well that there's no chance of actually having any sort of physical intimacy with her hologram indicates that it, it he actually, what he wants is to talk to her at last. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think for me, it's oddly enough, I don't get as creeped out at first about him kind of wearing the Kachansky disguise because it is for me a disguise in the same way that, uh, you know, Holly can give him a beehive hairdo. He can make (laughs) him look like Kachansky. Um, So I I don't know that that immediately bothers me in quite the same way. What bothers me first is this kind of straightforward manipulation of Lister with, with just like, like you said, a very shallow understanding of what matters in a relationship of saying, well, if I have her sexual allure, um, I'm smart enough. I can figure this out. And there is like a mansplainy aspect to that of, oh, it's easy to be a girl. You just look cute and then you talk a certain way. Yeah. Um, so I and- think like you, Rimmer gets revealed as having like deeply deeply sexist issues yes uh, this, we'll this is back all to- this is all going to come to a head in parallel universe <laughs> oh of god is, is it is it is it ever going to <laughs> of course um but your, your episode on that is going to be eight months long um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, i'm in the funny position of striking sort of uh, moderate middle ground between two extremes here because i see both your points um I, I i understand why daniel is creeped out by it but i also well, I, I, I think your points are very, very, uh, very good, Shana. I really do. And I think ultimately it's about a misogynist man rather than a misogynist representation in itself. 
Well, and I start to get more problematic with it when it is then played for laughs. So the idea that he is then looking down and being like, oh, boobs. Ah. Yeah. Hmm. But the joke so, is Rimmer there, isn't it? About Rimmer being a, a, a creepy asshole. Yeah, and it, it, it is all about Rimmer having this complete misunderstanding of what a human relationship is. Yeah. What, wh- how does he find value? And again, how does he find power? And for Lister, his power would have been drawn from the idea that someone like Kachansky would have been into him. Yeah. It's, it's not even the the reality clearly it's that he had this crush on this chick who was smarter than him who was badass who um seemed to put him in his place like at least from his perspective um you know that's the kind of chick that you know he would settle for <laughs> do, do you know what i think the episode is missing i think it's missing an exchange between lister and kachansky in the flashback I think if yeah. you had something there that indicated a certain degree of li- a mutual liking and mutual appreciation, not friendship, they don't know each other exactly like friends, but they're aware of each other. They've, they, they know each other to pass the time of day and they obviously enjoy talking to each other on that not quite intimate level yet, but maybe it could possibly go there. You know, the, you know, the way yes, things work. if you had a scene like episodes, that, right? We, that's in the first that episode. Last isn't it? episode. You, you had yeah. that in the end. You had you had a yeah. a, a couple of lines of dialogue. Yeah. If I you think... could import that scene into Balance of Power, Balance of Power would be improved. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I have, I, and I've been thinking while you guys have been talking about you know kind of where this uh, my my kind of problem with this sort of comes from, and I think partly it's because. I mean, I agree that it is a portrait of um, Rimmer as a misogynist, more so. Yeah. You know, I, I think that he is portrayed but as being a misogynist here. He even comes out with the old thing about women are interested in guys at going places, you know. He, right. he thinks that Kachansky's obviously not going to be interested in Lister. She's going to be interested in a guy who's up, up, up the ziggurat. You know? Right, right. I think that, for me, it's the idea that the most lines that Claire Grogan ever gets in the series is not as Kachansky. It's as yeah. Rimmer and Kachansky. You know what I mean? That yeah. If yeah. If we had gotten the sense of, if we had gotten just more time with Kachansky as Kachansky, this would feel less like a violation of the character in in a in a weird way, because yeah. we and get so little that. time with her as herself that then like oh and then Claire Grogan's in as Rimmer. You know what I mean? Um, I I would agree with that more, except for that. There is some future telling you're doing here. Um, I think I get more disappointed with that as the show goes on because I kind of expected there to be more flashbacks. Um, I was just going to say, wouldn't it be fabulous if you could have a flashback in every episode? And honestly, I really thought when we got to this episode the first time, I was like, oh, now they're going to start involving the past a little bit more so we have some more context for how it is three million years later. And they do it some, and then there's, you know, stuff, which we'll get to when we get to. Um, (laughs) It's amazing how much of this is fixed in Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, anyway. I think you lose something. You, you lose the, the idea of Kachansky as the, the lonely man's fantasy. You know, it, um, there is something, obviously that's not unproblematic, but there is something kind of interesting and, and well, uh, you know, sympathetic about that in this I, version I, of the relationship. But I think you gain more when you make them exes rather than uh, strangers. Yeah, I don't think that it automatically makes it problematic. Because like I said, you can have someone who writes about that lost opportunity, that lost love as a muse, mm. um, uh, someone who they derive power from just from having that brief moment with. Yeah. Um, that, again, I just think it goes back to Dante and before. And there is a bit of poetic resonance that I think Lister has. For Kachansky, that might just be Craig Charles and the way he feels about women. Uh, <laughs> um, but there is this kind of wistfulness of, at least in my watching, I sense that Lister, his primary reason he misses Kachansky is not just because he didn't know whether or not she liked him, but he never really got to have a conversation. And yeah. so even though I want her to be in the show and I want there to be a conversation, the fact that it was the conversation that never got to happen for so long is is such a powerful part of this show for me. Yeah, it, there's a way in which some of the, the deepest problems with it are actually part of what makes it work. Mm -hmm. um, it's such a sad show, isn't it? Particularly this episode. It's very, very funny, but there's so much in it that's incredibly melancholy. Um, all these oh. lost opportunities, all these regrets, all these neuroses and loneliness. Well, and when you see him with his friends, uh, yeah. when you see Lister with his friends, I mean, yes, they may be the loser drunks in the corner, but <laughs> God damn it, do they love each other? And do they look like they are just enjoying the fuck out of each other and spitting beer and putting mugs on their head? And yeah, it, it's they're you know, do I have issues with they what they say? Sure, I would probably have issues with most dude bros getting drunk. Um, they tend to say stupid things. Sorry, uh, but <laughs> yes, we do. We do. We do. <laughs> True. You know, they're. I think the, the dodgy things they say are aimed more at Lister than actually at Kachansky, aren't they? Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, they're they're teasing they're teasing Lister, not not Kachansky, really. You yeah. Know? And I think that that's why, even though I wish there was a more, there were more female characters, and you know, yada yada yada. I can go on about that forever. Um, I think that they do try to use her as a reflection. Yeah, kind of a, a mirror to hold up to Lister so that he can say, this is someone that I didn't even talk to. And all I really want to know is if she ever would have talked to me because I just think she was the raddest. Yes. <laughs> she she was the coolest chick and I really should have made a move and I never did. I didn't even really get to know more about her. Uh, and I do get that feeling from Lister that the reason he was afraid to go talk to her was because he knew that she was smart. Um, and he likes intelligence. 
um, despite being a slobby mess with no aspirations. So again, Lister's very clever. He's a very clever man. He's very clever. Yeah. So does that make him have more power in than Rimmer? A lot of the time, yeah. A lot of the time he can talk his way out of just about any Rimmer situation. Oh, yeah. He can run rings around Rimmer. And not um, just that. He'll do it in ways just to amuse himself. Yeah. And the contrast between that that con you know they're, they're differing personalities but the fact that you know according to the way the world is supposed to work as rimmer understands it he nevertheless should be ordering lister about and why why doesn't he do as i tell him i'm so much better than him why doesn't he understand that um, yeah it's and, like and, he's such a simpleton he should really understand that i'm better than him yeah um yeah. and you know that's not something that we don't see anymore no <laughs> and again, the theme of power and hierarchy, part of undoubtedly, I think, certainly from this, and, and why Lister doesn't approach Kachansky in the first place is that he doesn't feel equal to her. And that's to do with her position, you know, that the hierarchy on the ship, the fact that she's an officer, she's middle class, you know, that that class thing running right the way through it. it it's, yeah, it's, it's incredibly integrated. Uh, I, I love the way this is written. It's yeah. So yeah. we keep saying this. It's so fucking dense. It, yeah. It like, is. There's just so much here. There is so much that you we could continue to pick apart. Like we could literally do a live reaction to the show and pause it every five seconds yeah. and have something to say. Um, because I do think it is that well thought through. I think that even the subplots are very well chosen and orchestrated. Even the the jokes where, you know, Lister sits down and says, crap, and the toilet turns around. It's <laughs> the dumbest joke ever. It's the dumbest joke ever, but to have that be a joke that you make in an episode like this, you know, where, like, you know, he's essentially being like, life just gives me shit, and the toilet's like, can I flush for you? <laughs> And it's like, yes, yes, I really wish you fucking could, but until then, leave me alone. Um, <laughs> I and, love what the toilet says as well. I'm oh, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I, 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 you know, I love this show. I yeah. love the actors on it. It has yeah. a lot of problematic things that anything from this time period has. Well, but they they do learn. I think that I yeah. think one of the things that we come, that we're gonna come to, or that I come to, as I as I kind of look at the the later, some of the later seasons, they start to learn some of these lessons. Mm -hmm. And you know, women are not portrayed in the same way, and and there is there is you know, ultimately they're still stuck to their their gender imbalance that they started with to some degree. But they they do learn some of these lessons, and I think that you know it, it is problematic, but you know it's not. You know, it's almost background noise for 1988. You know, like you, you almost can't blame it for just being as sexist as the society in which it's embedded. Um, yeah, and I think that that's kind of where I fall with the fact that the fact that Kachansky is as brash and straightforward and kind of a rocker chick as she is. 
um, and looks like she considers going and beating the shit out of Rimmer for a second before thinking he's not worth it. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I think that there says something to that's the girl that Lister likes. I love one of my favorite little bits of acting from Claire Grogan is actually her doing the Rimmer salute. (laughs) <laughs> when she says swap discs and then does the rumor salute and has that like you know yeah um yeah she's so she's so good i'm just like you know i it it's, is, it's enough I just, yeah i i think watching every episode with her um in this part and i guess you know we're already spoiled it uh to our listener um this kachansky comes back with a different actress Far, far down the line. Yeah, not not just. I mean, they they completely rewrite the character at some point in the future, which we will not reveal (laughs) at this point. But the you know the people who know know. Yeah, Um, but I I think part of what makes me fall in love with Lister a little bit here is he's not in love with a manic pixie dream girl, not even the 1980s version of that. He is just smitten with this smart, takes no shit kind of girl. Mm. And he can't even get the guts up to talk to her because he thinks she's so cool. Yeah, and she's undoubtedly going to look down on someone like him. Mm Mm-hmm. He thinks. He thinks. Yeah. And so even though you have these horrible sexist moments with Rimmer, it, it, yeah, again, it just makes me go, God, Rimmer. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Grab the boob because that's, you know, it's your boob kind of right now and you're feeling yourself up. So, like, way to go. It's it's literally Rimmer getting in touch with his feminine side, though, right? Like (laughs) this is part of his this is part of his uh, evolution as a uh, as a character. But it's also kind of you know in that in that way that Rimmer is sad and pathetic and pitiful. It's also that as well, isn't it? Because it's it's the only way he's ever going to touch a boob. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So I think that there is a play a little bit just on the fact that Rimmer is constantly a accusing Lister of just being so disgusting and so obscene and yet he's the one with the study drugs he's the one who is like basically like yes I will fondle this body while I have it um Rimmer Rimmer projects so much onto Lister so much yeah but yeah, I don't know if I have much else to say. Uh, and... uh, we, we've been going for about two hours. I think it's about time to let Jack go to bed. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah I wouldn't mind at some Christ, point. Jack, what time is it? Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank it's you, fun. Jack, so much for staying up till almost three in the morning and talking to us today in your time. We definitely yeah. appreciate it. It's been always... great been great fun. Thank you. Thanks You're for having me. Come back. Uh, Jack, tell us before we uh, end the episode, what uh, where can people find your podcasts and blogs and such? Google Shaboogan Graffiti 1-0. Okay. 1-0-1-G, <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. yeah it's there part of Eruditor and Press. Google that and you'll find me there. And if, other, you're American, other if you're American, it looks like Shaboggan. Yes. Yeah, the, the the disparity between how it's spelt and how it's pronounced is part of the joke. 
I will include a link in the show notes. Uh, all our other stuff can be found on releasespaceman.com. You can find there will be some stuff at the end that tells you all that kind of stuff. Again, thanks everybody for being on. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, next time you're going to get to hear us talking about waiting for God. That's right. We're going to talk about religion in the next Searching for Fushal. It's going to be great. Yeah, talk, talking about thematically dense episodes. Bloody hell. <laughs> oh, God, I can't wait. You can't see, but I'm doing the full rumor salute here. <laughs> Are you doing the <laughs> double rumor, Jake? <laughs> <laughs> which is which is the one that's for full ceremonial occasions? I can't remember. <laughs> right, yeah, no, for full ceremonial like dress occasions. Uh, alongside like 21 gun salutes, you do it with both arms and with... Uh, oh, both arms, that's right, yeah. Both <laughs> arms and six uh, swings instead of three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh I know way too much about Red Dwarf lore. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It is. All right. Well, All right. Until, until next time, we'll still be searching for Fouchot. <laughs> and the drive plate is closed.